Climb into the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name is Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at LinkSquares, and today we have Sean Hoyt. Sean, welcome. Yeah, very excited to be here. Thank you, Tim. So um, we start out, it's a pilot-themed podcast. Uh, we start out every episode the same way. What is your pre-flight ritual? Not trying to be metaphorical. About it. Like <laughs> Literally before you get on a plane, do you, have a, do you have a routine that you do? I'm one of those people that likes to get to the airport really early. Okay. Um, and, and in part, just because it takes the stress out of it, but also knowing that I'm going to be on a plane for a couple hours, just kind of yeah. sitting in a cramped little space, I just like to get around and walk. Oh, nice. Um, so I love Lo Logan Airport here in Boston in particular because I've discovered that you can walk all the way from gate B1 all the way to the very end of Concourse E. Yeah. Um, and so if I've got a flight, for example, that's I've got some time, I can get a lot of steps in before my flight. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, and, and if you can't make it quick enough, Logan's also easy enough and accessible enough where it's like, oh, crap, I'm boarding in 10 minutes. <laughs> I try <laughs> and not you can to still do make that. it. Yeah. 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 I've, I've had a couple where I've had to do that. But for me, uh, if I'm flying, if I'm flying commercial, I uh, usually usually I, I try to get there a little bit early and uh, kind of the same thing. Uh, if it's morning, I like to get Dunkin'. Uh, just, it's kind of like my airport treat. Um, but typically, uh, if it's at the end of the day, I'll grab a drink beforehand and just sort of relax. But I, I love it. I love being at airports. It's a ton of fun. So, um, well, let's, let's get into a bit, into it a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about your career path, uh, where you are now and sort of what journey you've, you've taken. I, I, I was looking, you've, you've held a bunch of roles that, seemingly don't have a ton to do with uh, with the practice of law, but obviously would love to hear sort of your take on it. Well, in, in some ways, my career path feels to me like it's been very linear. Um, you know, I, I went right from college to law school, went right from law school to a law firm. I worked downtown Boston here at Choate Hall and Stewart. Mm -hmm. And then I went right from a law firm into the practice of in-house law in tech. Yep. And I've been in tech in-house ever since. Yeah. So that way, if you look at it, it looks very planned and very linear. Right. Um, but was what was not linear and not expected was that once I got in-house, I would get pulled into a, a wide variety of operational roles. Yeah. Um, over the course of my in-house career, I've run HR teams. I've run finance teams, security, facilities. I mean, I've managed insurance. I've managed lending. Okay. Um, none of which I ever expected. Right. And then <laughs> at one point in time, I was even the interim CFO of a public company. Oh, no kidding. And had to do investor calls okay. for, for two quarters. Yeah. And investor roadshows. Did and you have a finance undergrad? No, it was just literally, you know, one of the things that's been a hallmark, I guess, of my career is that um, I, I expressed curiosity okay. about the business. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how do things work? And and as a result of that, when opportunities come up, um, I typically have kind of been poking my nose in them enough 
Yeah. That somehow I seem like a likely candidate to to, to manage it in That's transition. Awesome. I've never I've never done one of these as a long term okay. career change. It's always been while I was also running a legal function. Right. But it was always you know someone who was running that function left, okay. or there was a restructuring or mm -hmm. a layoff or something happened and the company needed someone to step in for a while. Yeah. And it just keeps ending up in my lap. <laughs> now, at Al Systems, where I am now, um, I'm, I feel like I'm back to my DNA. Yeah. Um, I'm doing what I think I'm the best at and what I love the most, which is being part of a, a deal process. Yeah, you're, you're running commercial and a deal desk, right? Correct. So I yeah. run the legal, I run the commercial part of the legal team okay. at Al Systems. Now, we're a, we're a Portuguese-based company that's okay. global. Yep. So we're in over 87 countries in terms of where our customers and partners and suppliers are. So yeah. And we have over 5,000 entities we do business with yep. across those three types. So it, it's that's been a, a great challenge yeah. um, to work at that scale. Yeah. And um, a lot of what I've ended up doing at OutSystems, yeah, we're trying to negotiate all the contracts and draft them. But a lot of what I do is around the process and the systems. Yeah, that we use. So if we've got that many customers and that many partners and suppliers, how do you make it scale? Right. And now anytime I come across a proposed a proposed way of doing something, I have to ask myself, is this going to scale, let's say, to 10,000? Right, right. And if it doesn't, then I've got to rethink it. When did you, uh, what was the size of the customer base when you started and maybe the employee base too? So I've only been at OutSystems for uh, a little over a year. Okay. So we okay. are growing. We're adding several hundred customers okay. every quarter. So we're, we're doing a wonderful job at That's expanding awesome. the base of the business. Yeah. Um, but it, I part of the reason I was excited to take the job was it was a scale I hadn't worked on before. Right. I've worked in public companies and, you know, larger tech companies, but they always focused on the top of the enterprise segment. Okay. We are dealing with the biggest of the big. Right. So, you know, maybe we were doing, you know, hundreds of millions in revenue, but we were doing it on a base of a few hundred customers. Right. Right. You know, now I'm dealing in thousands of customers. Yeah. It's a different it's a different ballgame altogether when you're looking at it from that perspective. It's because you have uh, you have more considerations, uh, ultimately more personalities, more things can go wrong people using your products a little bit differently. It's definitely a, a, a very different, very different environment yeah. than just going after, you know, top, you know, top 500 largest firms out there. The focus shifts too from how do we maximize the value of every single deal yep. towards how do we maximize the overall volume of business? Sometimes, it, you know, it might be okay to you know, know that in some situations, maybe we're, you know, kind of underpricing it a bit, but that's the way we're going to get the most customers on board. Yeah. Um, Are you, I, I assume you're uh, part of the approach is very much a let's gain as much market share as we can. We'll continue to monetize through, you know, additional features and functionality and things like that. The focus is very much on letting the product, getting the product in his hand is hands of many customers and developers as possible. Right. And knowing that the product works really well and that we have a very high rate of expansion once right. people start using it. So that's awesome. You know, we we're, we'll people can come in and start using out systems at a very low price point. Yep. And then we make it very easy for them to expand. Right. And so if we can get as many customers as possible and they have a good product experience, then that whole engine of product led growth 
kicks in and then the, the product almost expands on its own because yeah. it's so easy to use and because people are able to expand their use of it relatively easily. So how have you, uh, how have you sort of changed the way the deal desk operates uh, to accommodate sort of the increasing customers? And how does, you know, uh, how, do, how does the deal desk work uh, maybe with new business versus expansion? You know, with a with a deal desk, you know, part of the way that I typically approach it is to realize that your average salesperson in the course of a year actually doesn't do that many deals. Okay. Um, and so even though they're very, they might be very knowledgeable about how to sell their product, they're not very knowledgeable about all the different things that might happen over the course of a negotiation. Okay. And so part of it is how do you make the deal desk the central repository of expertise okay. about how to get complex deals done. And if an objection comes up, how do you respond to that objection? Mm -hmm. If you need to navigate an internal approval process, how do you do that really fast? Right. And with a high, when you shift into a high volume mode, it really puts a premium on having as much of that pre-built. Yep. And so we focus a lot um, on having pre-built assets. Okay. Anticipate all the objections that might come in and pre-build the fallbacks right. that we have available and then also pre-build in the delegation of authority. Right. So rather than each time the objection comes in, now I've got to figure out who approves it. Ideally, I've already been given empowered to adopt those positions without yeah. having to seek approval as long as they're within certain parameters. Yeah. Um, and that way you can respond to objections very quickly without having to go through a lot of process. Yeah, exactly. It's great to have that that sort of playbook. And I think at some point you hit a scale where, you know, you just don't have any other way to operate. You know, I, I, I've done deals with Facebook and, you know, deals with Google where we actually were able to talk to them, which was pretty remarkable, uh, especially given our, what our size was at the time. And that's, you know, that's exactly how they were operating. They're like, listen, I, I get what you're saying here and we can't go as far as where you want to go, but here's where we can go. And it's just like, you could tell in the, in the, in the red lines that it was just delete paragraph, insert pair, insert different paragraph. Right. And they add that sort of bank of bank of things and positions that they could go to, which, which makes a ton of sense, makes a ton of sense. And it makes it a lot easier and more efficient, I think on the legal team in particular, if you've got a compelling enough offering, um, you know, customers will usually usually take it as long as it's reasonable. We're even trying to push some of that empowerment down to the actual sales rep so that yeah. in our repository of fallbacks, there's tiers. Right. And in a tier two for tier one is kind of everything that's standard. Yep. Tier two are fallbacks that the sales team can adopt on their own. They don't even need to come to the deal desk. Okay. So things come up frequently and we always say yes. Well, let's just let the salespeople run with those. Yep. And then tier three and tier four are things that need to come back to the deal desk for some consideration. And then tier fives are the one-offs. Those are the ones that are like, okay, we haven't seen this one before actually. Right. Um, this one might need to go all the way up to legal. Um, but then once we craft a response on tier five, the key is, well, let's push that down and make that a tier three or tier four for the future. Right. So we can reuse it. It's reuse is in my view, reuse and empowerment yeah. are the two ways you scale. That's, that's awesome. So when, when you think about, you know, the difference between tier two, three, four, maybe, um, do you, as a legal team, either have parameters for 
it needs to be, you know, X dollars, Y jurisdiction. Do you have like those types of rules that, that you've implemented? Um, or is it just sort of like, okay, we'll, we'll allow our sales reps to go on these types of provisions that take them into the different tiers? I think a, a lot of the industry is, you know, in the SaaS, you know, I've seen moving towards having, you know, size of deal thresholds before, you know, there's really a, a willingness to negotiate because negotiation takes money. It takes yes. time yeah. and, it, and it takes resources. It adds cost. That's right. And, and time to the sale. So if it's yep. a small deal, you know, it, that's not worth it or scalable over time. Right. So we've adopted that model. We have what we call no touch and low touch thresholds where if you're below those thresholds is either no negotiation or maybe you maybe the salespeople can take out of that tier two, but we can't go into like tier four. Right. For example. But we do have an exception that for our top tier enterprise clients um, sure. that, you know, we're willing to negotiate even if it's a small deal under the realization that the, the long term potential of that account is massive. Right. That makes makes a ton of sense. So with. Um, I guess maybe shifting gears a little bit. The first time that you started overseeing a group that wasn't the legal team, what was the most difficult thing that you had that you had to sort of switch or think about uh, in doing that? Part of the, you know, real is like I'll use the example of when I ran a people team for mm -hmm. the first time, which I did for two years right at the start of COVID. Okay. So it was yeah. quite an interesting <laughs> challenge. Um, but the first thing for me was to realize quickly that I was no longer the functional expert. Right. Because whenever I've been running a legal team or a deal desk, usually I'm as, you know, as experienced or maybe more experienced than the rest of the team. Right. So they're coming to me for domain expertise. Mm -hmm. And when I'm running a people team, all of a sudden I no longer have that. Right. Right. I have to rely on the functional expertise of the people on the team and make sure that my team that, you know, if either I have them or I hire people that have that deep functional expertise that I don't have. Right. And then, you know, I rely on them to provide that context. So really. At that point, I'm really focusing on how can I lead this team in terms of setting goals, um, mm -hmm. keeping on track for our goals, um, making sure we're working on the right priorities, yeah. making sure we're making the, the, the hard decisions when, you know, tough issues come up, especially on the, you know, kind of people and performance front. Sure. Um, and also setting the tone within the company okay. um, and making sure that, you know, across the company, people realize like what the team stands for. Right. What's our vision? What's our mission? Mm -hmm. um, and that we're highly accessible. Yep. And people know that they can, you know, reach out to us. That will be, you know, customer service. When every every team that I've run, I place a high focus on being very visible. Yep. Being very easy to to, to reach out to and being very responsive. Yes. Um, people in the company have to trust that. Okay, like I can. You know, I, I know where to find them. And if I do reach out, I'm going to get a quick answer. And it's right. going to be a practical one. Yeah. That's important. It's not going to be a no. Right. Or a rigid approach. Exactly. Exactly. That aspect of building the relationships is key across. It's something that we talk about a ton here. Collective Council is um, really focusing no matter what leadership role you're in, whether it's, you know, whether it's over the people team or any any or the legal team or any other team that may may fall under you is making sure that you're customer driven in a way that's like all right the business is my customer i'm here to serve them um sort of mentality right and 
what I think is the first step in actually making making a successful image for your team is providing visibility as to what's going on. And you know, even if you can't get a quick response or you can't get the yes response, being being transparent in the way that you approach that project or that work and being deliberate in the way that you explain your reasoning and rationale behind it, I find it goes goes a long way with building the trust. And ultimately that's what you're trying to do is build the trust between your team and others throughout the organization. And usually if you're able to do that, good things happen. And the image of your team ends up being p pretty positive across across the org. Yeah, absolutely. So um, looking at looking at a, a little bit, maybe a little bit earlier in your career, I saw you had a, a COO role for a little while too. What what was your biggest challenge there? And um, and maybe just asking kind of a follow up question with it after you've managed teams that are not legal teams where you are able to just say, all right, I have this expert. How how have you then dealt with your legal teams and what does that difference look like? The biggest challenge of, you know, for example, when I you know started to grow into like a true COO role was just realizing the breadth of that role and how in how many areas I wasn't a functional expert Yeah. to get back to my point earlier, um, because as as that role was evolving at that company, I was, you know, at some point in time, it was going to be four to five functions that I was running other than legal yep. or in addition to legal. And looking across those, you know, the just realization that I I have to f I have to focus on the fact that I'm going to contribute in, in, in a way that's not relying on functional expertise. Right. Um, and that, you know, it's it's an opportunity and it's exciting because um, you got to flex different muscles, but it's also intimidating. Yes. Um, and it's easy to, you know, start to doubt yourself um, and kind of wonder whether you're fit for it. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, what I tried to channel was that if teams have good leadership and you empower and support the people that do have the functional expertise, you can still have a really high performing team, you know, yeah. even if the leader of that team is, you know, someone who is non-traditional or right. kind of didn't come up from within the team. Yeah. Um, but that was a challenge and it got to the point where, you know, it's, it sapped a lot of energy from me, I'll be honest, um, okay. trying to kind of be able to jump from function to function to function within a day yeah. many times and then, you know, kind of really show up with full energy and organization right? Um, around, you know, that many times in that many areas of the day. Um, yeah. And in, in terms of what I, you know, took from it now that I'm kind of back, you know, more focused mm -hmm. on kind of the deal process and commercial and legal, you know, I think I've really brought to it that, okay, now, especially if this has my whole focus, then I really have to focus on you know, um, still applying those same concepts, not fall back into, okay, now I know what I'm doing. I can lead a different way. Right. I still want to focus on, you know, um, tapping into the functional expertise of the people on the team, yeah. because even though I've got a lot of it, so do they. Right. Um, right. and you know, empowering them, getting them to step up and take on areas of responsibility. Cause when I was COO, I couldn't, 
step in and do a lot of the important work. Right. I had to have the other people do it because they knew the, the you know they knew the security protocols. I didn't. Right. Right. Um, for example, um, now on you know within legal, I still want to do the same thing, even though I could do all that work. Right. But that's not the way to grow the team. It's not the way to develop the team. Right. The way to develop them is to is to say, hey, you know, you know how to do this too, or I can help you take it to the next level. Right. And then let all of them succeed, and I'm really just kind of helping everyone succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and helping everyone grow and develop. Yep. And then the team thrives as a result. I don't need to thrive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I uh, I oversee IT operations and HR here as well as oh, legal. So you get and, it. And yeah, and that's been that's been one of the struggles for me is that I'm, you know, I I'm probably a, a lot more of a pain in the butt for our VP of legal than I am for, <laughs> for our functional leaders of the others. But it, you know, it's it's been what's been really difficult for me is to see somebody else doing doing the function that I know very very well and doing it in a different way and being able to say, all right, that's not the way that I would do it, but that way it can work. Yeah, right. Um, that's that's probably been the most challenging thing I think for me. But it's uh, you know other than that, it, you're right when you have functional leaders who really know what they're doing, who are pr true professionals. Um, it's pretty easy to just kind of give them give them the perspective that you gain from maybe sitting in the executive's executive seat or you know talking with the board or investors or whatever it may be and helping just provide perspective and then you know sort of gut checking what you know what they're doing but you know largely uh, when when you have pros running the function it makes life a whole lot easier yeah so Sometimes with those, you know, the people that are kind of, you know, your, you know, the, you know, track leads or team leads within the yeah. team, they've got the functional expertise, but what they haven't learned yet is leadership. Right. And so you can start to, that's where you can actually help to grow them is just to, because that, that, you know, but that they may not know yet. They may not have kind of been able to develop those skills yeah. about how do you, how do you develop your, you know, your executive presence? How do you right. lead a project? Right. You know, how do you go on and, and take on additional influence within the company? Yeah. And so, you know, as much I've learned that over the years and that's yeah. been a big part of my success. Um, but how do then I kind of help other people learn those same skills in addition to, you know, being able to grow their functional knowledge? Yeah, exactly. And I, I tend to I tend to try to focus on um, on providing them direction as far as like this sounds like something that you and the rest of your senior leadership team members should figure out, right? Like it, you know, the default for me is always, you know, I, I expect the team to come to me with solutions, not just problems. And I also expect that the team, you know, focuses, you know, they're, they're all VP level. They, they really focus their attention on building the relationships with the other vice presidents in the company. Right. And being able to being able to think of the VP as their team first, not, OK, the HR team is my team. Well, of course it is. Right. But first things first, when you're when your perspective is to be a leader in, in the organization, you can't put the HR function or the IT function above the interests of the product org or the engineering yeah. org. Right. You have to be able to work across those orgs and understand um, and internalize what those teams need in order to grow as an executive. Is I, I think about it in terms of perspective, really. It's just 
what's the best way to gain perspective, not to continue to build your team as large as it can be, to start to understand what people across the, the business are doing and how that, how basically all of the parts play together. Um, so let's, let's jump into, I know we, we probably ran a little bit over on time, but that's okay. We could probably talk about that uh, for, I don't know, another two hours or so. It would be fun. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have to do another episode. <laughs> I'm there. Um, let's talk about your fitness journey. You're a big fitness guy. Would love to, would love to hear just some of the story um, about how that became such a strong passion for you. And I know you're, you know, you've got, uh, you've got a YouTube channel, you've got your own website, Instagram, et cetera. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. No, oh, thank you. It's, it's my personal kind of passion. Yeah. I've been active for a lot of my life, not all. Okay. I took a definite detour when I was a young lawyer working 70 hours a week and gained 30 pounds and that happens. got off track, but yeah. eventually I got back on track. Yeah. Um, and so for most of my life, fitness has been important to me. Yeah. Although for most of my life, it's been very situational. Okay. I would sign up for a race. I would train for that race. I would, you know, do that race and uh, often, you know, did some things I'm proud of, but then I would just kind of fall back into just you know, kind of mindless maintenance mode. Right. Um, there's a max, you know, there's a saying that says, you know, if you always stay in shape, you never have to get in shape. Yeah. And I never had that mentality. It was sure. like you get in shape for a race and then you slack for a while and then another race comes and then you get back in shape again. Yeah. But once I started to get towards my 50s, mm -hmm. um, I really all of a sudden started thinking about it very differently because I started to think about, okay, now that I'm getting older, like, can I do this in a way where I'm not declining right. as I age, where I actually take all the things that I've learned over time and actually find, can I get stronger right. as I get older? Yeah. And so I kind of had this whole thing about, you know, being fit at 50 um, yep. and, you know, really showing that you get better as you age Yeah. or you can. Sure. And if you have been declining, you can reverse it. Yeah. Um, and with a lot of intentionality and, and thought and hard work, you can actually do things in your 50s you've never done before. Right. So I became a big proponent of uh, Spartan racing. Okay. In my 50s, never done it before. Yeah. Um, and I started doing triathlons in my 40s and now I'm doing things later in life that I never did before and taking on new challenges, doing things for the first time. Yeah. Um, and now it's very intentional. It's not like get ready for something and then slack off. It's like, right. you know, stay ready all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Let's talk about your first Spartan race. We we just had Deanna Sheridan on uh, a couple of, a couple of days ago. Here uh, would would love to hear what drew you to Spartan race and and what that first experience was like. You know, it actually ties back to a Tough Mudder. Okay. Um, and uh, this is the way a lot of people get into obstacle course racing is they do it with friends. Okay. And they have such a fun time that they said that they say, Oh my God, I have to do that again. Yeah. So a couple of friends at work at a prior company invited me to do a Tough Mudder. Okay. I think it was 2018. Yeah. And we did the, the what's called the classic, which is about nine miles. All right. Um, and we went out there and it was, it, you know, Tough Mudder is more of a team ethic. Okay. Okay. Um, and it was just so much fun doing these crazy obstacles. Um, with like brightly colored water and mud everywhere. <laughs> and I just, it was so new and interesting and different. Yeah. And it was such a, a new challenge for me that I was like, all right, it felt good to do something new. It felt good to challenge myself in a new way. Right. Versus like, oh, I'll just keep running. I'll do another running race and try to shave 
10 seconds off my PR. Now this was yeah. totally new ground. So you did you did cross country all all through school yep. and uh, did you did you run in college as well? Personally, I did okay. mar- I, I yeah, ran didn't, I ran marathons and, but I didn't run for for school, yeah. Okay. No okay. way I would have been good enough for yeah. my college <laughs> team. The, the D1, the D1 athletics is a, no that's a different animal altogether. Yeah, not a chance. Yeah. But um, you know, so now as I've gotten into my 50s, that my whole mentality is around how do we, you know, in, you know, as 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 we age, how do we challenge ourselves to do new things, to yeah. step outside of our comfort zone, to do things that are hard. Right. Um, and it's really there's a whole there's a whole book that the Spartan CEO Joe DeSena wrote that's called the Spartan Up. Okay. And I read this book and I loved it. It's like his mentality is is my mentality, which is like, you know, so much of the world now is trying to make things comfortable and, and more comfortable and more easy, right. less effort. Yep. But that doesn't that doesn't change you. It doesn't let you evolve. If you want to change and get better, you need to do hard things intentionally. Right. Intentionally choose the non-convenient path. Yeah. So, you know, his as the CEO's whole thing is, you know, don't wait till you're ready. Right. Like right. sign up for something hard, commit yeah. to it and get yourself ready. Right. You know, you'll never be ready at the start. Exactly. But you'll be ready by the end. Yeah, exactly. And I just love that mentality. And so I try to apply it and everything I'm doing in my fitness. And I'm constantly thinking about, okay, what's the next challenging thing? So what's the next challenging thing? For me, I am going to, 2024, I'm going to take on two big milestones. Okay. Number one is I'm going to get back to marathoning. I used right. to do marathons when I was younger, and I've taken a 23-year hiatus. Oh, my goodness. But okay. next year, I'm, I'm going back. All right. um, at one point in time, I had written it off, like, oh, I'm too, I'm too old for that. Yeah. And now I know you're not too old for anything. Right. Or most things. Right. <laughs> I couldn't get into the NBA at 55, but sure. I can run I can run a marathon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm excited to get back to that. I'm going to I'm going to try to do a um, get a charity number for Boston, raise money for Oh, nice. for a, a you know, cause dear to my heart. What uh what cause? Uh, diabetes about? research. Oh, great. So I'm, I'm talking to some of the, you know, the research organizations to see if they you know, they'll have uh, a charity team. Yeah. I have a son who has type 1 and Okay. So it means it means a lot to me. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other piece is that um, I started doing triathlons in my 40s when, you know, I realized I couldn't run every day because my knees would protest. Yeah. So I, I tried to embrace cross training. Okay. And so I've really enjoyed triathlons. Yeah. And it always seemed completely impossible to me that, you know, anyone, let alone me, could do an Ironman triathlon. Yeah. Like the full 140.6 mile race. That's insane. And eventually, you know, I, I always said, well, I can do triathlons, but not that one. Yeah. Like that's too crazy. Right. But in my mood, in my mindset now, I've realized, well, you know, why not? Right. Um, w- w- what if I could do it? Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a guy that I very in- much enjoy following named David Goggins. Okay. Yeah. A, I know the name. He's an intense yeah. ex Navy SEAL. Okay. And uh, he's got this thing saying whenever something seems really hard, he's like, do the math. Right. Like break it down. Like, okay. Like if you did do that, like how would it work? Right. And so I broke down the swim portion. Yeah. How long that how, would probably take a, me. How far of a swim is that? 2.4 miles. Oh, my gosh. And then okay. I broke down the bike portion, which is 112 miles. Yep. And then there's the marathon at the end. Yeah. And all of those seem really hard. But then when you think about how much time you have to complete it. Yeah. You have to do 17 hours to be an official finisher. Okay. But if I put together the times that I think I can reliably do each of those three events. Yeah. It's less than 17 hours. Okay. So it's like all of a sudden I it went from impossible, yeah, to I think I can do this. Yeah. So that's uh, you know, that, those are going to be my two kind of 
push myself to a new level in 2024. That's going to be incredible. So w when does training start? Um, or has it already started? I'm always training now. That, that's sure. my mindset. <laughs> I, I don't get out of shape and then have to get back into it. Right, right. You know, just kind of keep going. Yeah. Stay, you know, stay active, which is my, you know, like my my Instagram is at Sean Hoyt Stay Active. And yep. that's my website as well. And that's the whole point is just, you know, stay fit, stay active, and then just keep challenging myself to new things and not letting it, you know, not letting there kind of be these long breaks in between when, you know, you give up all the progress that you've made. Yeah, absolutely. Well, best, best of luck. And definitely let us know when, uh, uh, when, when you actually select which charity you're going to run for. I'm, I'm certain we'll, you know, we can, we can put stuff out and try to try to help out and get, uh, even just amongst our staff, get you, get you some fine uh, financing for, uh, Oh, that's fantastic. For the charity. Very generous. We, we love to do that stuff. So, um, so definitely keep us posted on it. Um, I know Alyssa, we've got a handful of questions from the audience and I think, uh, I think we've also got Alyssa's hot take for the day. Yes. So. Okay. So I guess we'll start. Um, what is your number one tip for maintaining motivation, both personally and professionally? I think for motivation for me, um, it's about two things. Number one is I always come back to my why, like, you know, what, what am I trying to accomplish at the most profound level? And for me, as I've kind of said before, it's about really trying to show myself and others, like I'm trying to not only do this for my personal reasons, but to kind of inspire other people that are, you know, kind of my same age or getting there, that as you get older, you don't have to accept that it's just a, you know, an inevitable decline, right? That you continue to do hard things um, and, and continue to get better. So I, I come back to that. And so it's like, you know, if, I, if I'm starting to kind of just lose motivation, it cuts directly against kind of the whole point that I'm working towards. Right. And then the other one's around accountability. Okay. I'm a big believer in public accountability, which yeah. is like whatever you say you're going to do, tell as many people as possible. Right. And then, you know, then you feel like, all right, I got to come through on this. I put myself right. out there. So exactly. I just told you on the show that I'm going <laughs> to run a full Ironman triathlon. Like I'm sure you have a lot of yeah. viewers and yeah. listeners. And so, you know, like I, I don't want to be the one when they, somebody sees me six months later and says, how's that triathlon training coming? Right. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So by putting myself out there and, and committing to what I'm going to do to a lot of people, yeah. it really helps me to keep motivated because, you know, I, I want to come through on that commitment. That's awesome. That's awesome. Nice. That leads nicely into this next question, which is how does your mindset help you lead and inspire your team professionally? I really do try in the professional setting to apply some of those same concepts. Like, you know, you know, what's something hard that we could do? And rather than thinking about it as that's impossible or that's never been done, well, what if we could do it? Right. You know, um, and start to think outside of the box and think, you know, innovative thinking that kind of pushes yeah. pushes the envelope. And then, you know, why can't we be on the front edge right. of, of a trend? And uh, I think that that kind of wakes people up because it's different. It's not like we're going to make this 5% better and then 5% better again, but we're always doing the same thing we were doing. But like, what if we broke the mold and did something different? Right. Um, you know, one of the things that at, at my company that's kind of like really reset my frame of mind is that, you know, um, I'm used to being in companies where pretty much every deal we did, we had to negotiate an MSA. Okay. But at our company, we've made our MSA online so good 
that you know almost 90% of our companies of our customers just accept it. That's awesome. No negotiation. Yeah. And that that really reset my mindset because if if you would have asked me coming in without knowing that you know what the number that we got to like what would be good, I would have said you know if you got 50-50. Yeah. But now we're at 90%. Okay, well where do you go from there? Right. And it opens up this exciting world of possibilities where you could do really innovative things where your online MSA, you know, might look something you know, might look something that's like much more, you know, um, you know, kind of modern, right? Um, and almost like conversational, okay. Then you know, long, you know, sections of text, right? Right. Um, so I'm trying to like just rethink, you know, rethink, and yeah. then get the team to to rethink. And I find that the creativity that that unlocks mm -hmm. is really is, is amazing. And, and my team um, has come up with some really interesting. Things that I wouldn't have thought of, yeah. and I think it's because they they feel empowered to think creatively and to and to step up and um, and to contribute. They're not just looking to you know for me. Okay, Sean's going to tell us what to do. Um, right. Instead, like we're all trying to think. Okay, like what's what, what what's possible? And I also, you know, um, constantly um, try to express gratitude. Yeah, that's a big part of my belief, which is that you know when you not only feel gratitude but you express it. Right. You unlock so much, um, you know, so much you build trust. Yep. But you also unlock, you know, um, people want to, you know, work hard when they feel appreciated. Right. Absolutely. That's uh, that's incredible and unique to have a legal environment, an environment in an in-house legal team where you have that freedom of creativity and you have, you know, you have a leader that it, that has enough sense and awareness about how to motivate people where where you're thinking about things from the perspective of gratitude and and how that does help motivate the team that's awesome um and then our last question that we ask everyone is what is your hot take about working in-house you know i've it, it's been i haven't looked back since going in-house um and there's been a lot of you know kind of people that i've counseled over the years either who were you know, just making that transition or wanted to make that transition. So um, I always think of like, what, what are the key pieces of advice that I give to people yeah. as they're thinking about doing that or just starting? Yeah. And I think one of the most critical things that, you know, I, I counsel people is that when you're working in a law firm, um, you know, a big part of your job is to analyze risk, yep. to look for risk and to try to find ways to point it out. Like you should be aware of this risk. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to minimize it. You're trying to say, oh, we should, you know, rephrase this so that this risk goes away or gets minimized. Right. And you're just counseling the company on the different ways to minimize risk or avoid it. Right. And in-house, I really think that over time I've come to realize you're, you know, if you're good and impactful in-house, you're actually um, kind of, you know, empowering the company to take risk. Yeah. But you're just focusing on what, what are the risks that are that are justified by the business yeah. benefit. Um, there's some risks that you don't want to take. The business benefit doesn't justify them. Sure. But there's a lot of risks that are reasonable to take. Yep. Um, and, you know, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll give you a quick example. Um, my team, you know, will come to me a lot and ask for input on a liability clause. Yeah. You know, maybe there's a there's no cap or there's a really high cap. And I don't give the same answer every time. Sure. Because every situation is different. And yeah. so I'll say, tell me about tell me about the deal. Yeah. Tell me about the customer. What do they do? What kind of application are they going to be building? What kind of data are they going to have in the application? Um, because in some cases, 
you know, as I, as I look at it, it's just not that big of a risk. Right. Um, you know, the scenarios, I said, you know, tell me the scenario mm -hmm. in which this risk would be large. Right. And I just asked them to like envision what that scenario would look like. And sometimes they can't yeah. because it's a, you know, the way the, the, everyone's going to be using the system and the kind of data we're going to have access to. It's just, you know, the risk, even if it came up would be well covered by insurance. Right. So I'm like, you know, let's do this deal. We don't need we don't need to change it. Right. But in some cases, like, you know, you play out the scenario and it's pretty catastrophic. Right. And in that case, OK, like, you know, let's let's build in some reasonable protections here. But I really want, you know, in-house lawyers to say embrace risk. Yeah. But just understand and be able to quantify risk yep. and be able to weigh it against business benefit. And yeah. when it's justified in light of the benefit, be ready and willing to take risk. Yeah, that's uh, that's. And that's a great point. I'm I'm a big uh, I I I welcome risk. I think risk is an opportunity, and I think it's more than a lot of a lot of early in-house attorneys look at look at risk as something to avoid and minimize. As you said, similar to you know what you're trained to do at a law firm. But the biggest thing I think about operating in-house is learning how not only from a legal perspective, but learning how to coach the business as to how to how to navigate it. And it's not navigating it where you minimize or eliminate the risk in any way. It's just moving circumstances or getting ahead of circumstances that could be the first domino to fall in a series of 20 dominoes, right? Or being able to pull out the 11th domino in that mm -hmm. chain Right. And and having confidence that if you manage things in the appropriate way, you won't get to the worst case scenario, even if something does go wrong. Right. Um, but, yeah, that that having that appropriate risk appetite, I think, is is something that. Attorneys coming in for their first gig probably should be thinking about a little bit differently. Yeah. And, it's, I mean, maybe it's, it's maybe it's different because I, you know, I of my time at DraftKings, where I think a lot of well, you're, you're, you were blazing ground and taking I, risks there. Yeah, yeah, I know there are a lot of there are a lot of people that I talked to that did not recommend that the risks that we were taking were, you know, measured and appropriate. But I think we proved them all wrong that they were absolutely measured and completely appropriate, and probably more than that necessary. Yeah, right. Um, healthy risk appetite and confidence that you can handle the consequences, I think, is really important. All right. Cool. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, let's figure out a time to get you on for another one. I would love uh, it. This has been a lot of fun. Months. It's been great. Uh, and definitely let us know when you select the charity for the marathon. Um, and we'll be we'll be sure to get get that out as many eyeballs on it as we possibly can. And uh, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, and uh, if you liked what you saw today, give us a follow, give us a like on all the socials, and we will see you next time. Thanks.